Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 548. Bring on the gravy. Emmett Kennedy. Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, things are going well. I'm looking forward to our interview that's coming up. So yeah, I guess for listeners, we can always say about 30 minutes in, we start our, our interview with Emmett Kennedy, which this is rare for us because normally we record the little intro post-interview. So I guess yeah. we don't know necessarily all of the major talking points that would come up, but certainly be talking about this year's racing and also some animal welfare issues because that's just been a major talking point uh, in, well, not only in the yeah. racing industry, but just, you know, sports discussion at large. So looking forward and if, to that. And if there's a big blank space at the 30 minute mark for an hour, that means he stood us up because <laughs> 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 we're recording this before. <laughs> yeah. I think we'd probably re-record it in all honesty if there's no, <laughs> if the interview isn't going to come. Hey, we're honest people. So I'm actually joining remote Eddie from the lovely Dallas, Texas. Well, you're technically we're always remote. We've we've never recorded an interview in person. No, just I I consider home base my my uh, my normal recording. It's not remote spot. even even when we're not in the same same place. No, it's a permanent spot. Every okay. almost every episode has been recorded there. Yeah, I guess, but sometimes you record from the office, sometimes you record from home. I actually say there's there's quite a lot of variety in where you record. Let's from. say I never but record anyway. from the office. Let's uh <laughs> But it doesn't mean you do it during office hours. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> How is Dallas? Dallas is okay. Um I wasn't sure what to expect. This is my first time in Texas, actually, which is surprising because being such a big state and having a lot of like convention centers in different cities, I always thought I'd eventually make my way to Dallas. But this is the first time, or to Texas. Anyway, what a but. depressing! What a depressing! Like I always thought I'd make my way to Texas because I've got a lot of convention centers. Yeah. What is well, that's because I'm, I'm always traveling for conferences. Are, oh yeah, that's that's how I determine where I'm most likely. I mean, I have like six or seven t- yeah, travels but even so. a year for conferences, so you'd figure one of them would be in Texas. Oh, uh, travel travels yeah. a year. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But it's it's not bad. Um, I had some real good barbecue yesterday, and I'm, I got a little more lined up today if my stomach can handle it. I'm not used to having three quarter pounds of brisket every day, so <laughs> was not feeling too hot this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a risk I can that I can relate to, and based on some recent events that we won't go into, <laughs> but it's. Can be a tough old time on the stomach. Did you get the chance then on your travels to watch the Manchester City Real Madrid match last night? I did not. I was attending the conference that I'm here for, so I was not. But I didn't really need to watch it, I don't think, because it seemed to be uh, a pretty deciding match. (laughs) Yeah, it was fairly one-sided. I mean, Manchester City just looked a class above Real Madrid. Absolutely dominated possession, created chances kind of at will. Uh, it really wasn't. You could just see a huge gulf 
in quality between the two teams, including and then in the turn the quality of the substitutes that they were able to bring on. Tactically, I thought Real Madrid got a little bit wrong. Camavinga playing at left back was just tormented all night and sort of exposed as not being a a true defender. So that probably I think they should have ditched that strategy. It was clear sort of 20, 30 minutes in that it was he was just never going to be able to handle what City were able to going to, were going to do down the right hand side. But you know, it was a, it was a statement for Manchester City in terms of really showing themselves to be probably the best team in Europe, which they'll probably like having that on their sort of record from this year's Champions League, because whilst they go into the match against Inter Milan as firm favorites, I think a lot of people will say it's just stri- slightly strange to have Inter Milan be the team that they're facing, you know, that they're up against in a Champions League final. And so maybe winning it doesn't necessarily prove quite how good you are. They haven't had the the most challenging run to the final and they won't face the most challenging opponent in the final either. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's tough when in the final you're playing a team that's I think what third in their own domestic league, you know, it's not always what you want to see for the champions league final. It's nice when you have, you know, two domestic league winners going at it that, are arguably the two best in the world, but I don't. Th- I wouldn't put Inter as number two in the world right now. <laughs> well, no, I mean when you consider, yeah, they're they're currently third. That could change before the season is finished, but they are in a good run of form, and they were, you know, they were much much better than AC Milan in that over the two legs, particularly in that second leg. I, I mean, I thought AC Milan looked fairly average. I mean, I guess at least you're right. It's not AC Milan because. Right now, I don't think they're even qualified to make Champions League next year. So that would, you know, to have a team in the finals that is out of the top, I think it's what, three or four spots, four spots for Syria? Yeah, they're currently fifth. So they need, yeah. and they are four points behind fourth. So it's looking unlikely for them unless Lazio <laughs> really slip up. So now they're facing, that was, you know, it's, one of those kind of sliding door moments for AC Milan to have been in a, in a winnable semifinal in the Champions League. I mean, at that moment, when the ch- ch- semifinal draw was done, you could have said that their their best path for getting back into the Champions League was the Champions League yeah. itself. So, yeah, it's unlikely that we will see them in the Champions League next year. Speaking of people or teams we won't be seeing, I'm disappointed, you know, I will be heading to Roland Garros, which kicks off next week. Uh, and I'm disappointed that, you know, a player who we've spent so much time discussing over the course, well, two players who we've spent a lot of time discussing over the course of this podcast, there are two who will be missing out. One being Nick Kyrgios, who has withdrawn from the French Open as a result of an injury that he sustained during a robbery so his car was stolen. I think his mother was held up at gunpoint, and then his car was stolen. And in his attempts to, I think, chase down the robbers, he injured him. Oh, yeah. You know he's going to do that. <laughs> he, injured, he injured himself. So Nick Kyrgios will not be at the French Open. And then, I guess, sadder news, Nadal won't be there either. Also missing out through injury. He's not played since yeah. the Australian Open. and He says he won't be fit in time. He also, as part of that announcement, said that 
his aim is to play next season and for next season to be his last. So I guess one more tilt at Oof. winning the French Open. One more chance, depending on it's what like happens. double sad news. <laughs> yeah. And depending on then what Novak Djokovic does in that time period, obviously maybe one more chance to sneak ahead in the all-time Grand Slam winners list. Although, you know, he's unlikely to stay there, even if he does somehow manage to do that. But sad. It's going to be, you know, in, the, in a fairly short space of time, we will have lost, you know, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, and Nadal, and... Djokovic well, we're not, doesn't have we're it. not losing them. I mean, I am. <laughs> it's not like they're. It's not like they're like. <laughs> I, I guess the, they're you're losing it's, them from the sport. <laughs> they're still around. <laughs> uh, they're not around for me. The only way I have. So if Rafael Nadal five years from now walked into the bar in Paris, you'd you'd look right past them. Wouldn't, wouldn't even say hi to him. No, he wouldn't exist anymore. He's gone. His only value as a human being is as a professional <laughs> tennis player. Why would I have any interest in him beyond that? But no, I I feel actually I I feel this I feel like this is sad news for you because to me I think he's one of your favorite athletes of all time. Um, I don't know if he would make that list. Like if I sort of drew up a, a top five of favorite athletes, but certainly, I mean, we're pretty much identical in age, so that's always. You know, talent. it's a little sad. It's a little, yeah, talent. We're both, big, you know, I'm left-handed, he's left-handed. Um, we've both held, held tennis rackets. I think, you know, there's it does make you feel older when you see this, you know, because in my mind, I can still remember him breaking through as a teenager and being this young phenomenon. And now he's an elder statesman who's about to retire. So it does kind of make you think about your own aging process and mortality to a slight degree. I mean, we've spoken about that before, right? With the same with the sort of Tom Brady retirement. But yeah, I mean, he is so dominant on clay that I just, and I love watching dominant athletes and dominant teams. You know, I really take a huge amount of pleasure in looking at people who do things at just a level that very few else can. And so that's a huge hole to fill. You just knew when the clay season rolled around for the last basically 20 years, we knew that there was going to be one person who almost never lost. And now it's just going to be, I mean, yeah, you have Alcaraz who looks like he might get close to that, but he's, it's highly unlikely that he's going to reach those levels. So yeah, it'll be a shame. He'll be missed. But not forgotten. Well, no, I mean, he's already got a statue at Roland Garros, right? So he's got that one checked off. So that will be a reminder. I think they should name Center Court at Roland Garros after him, which would be slightly controversial, I suppose, because he's Spanish. So, you know, if he were French, it would be a no-brainer. But I just think he it's impossible to think of that court without thinking of him, especially with the redevelopments that they've done in the period that he's been active so you really associate what that new stadium looks like with nadal and i just think you know he deserves then for it to be rafael nadal court i think that's that would be a fitting tribute better than the weird statue i mean the, the statue is not great so it's you know it would be nice they won't do it as i said because he's not french and which i can kind of get but i think he deserves it really 
the issue with that is the name just doesn't flow well. Like Nadal Court, maybe like Rafa Court. That that kind of works, <laughs> but like yeah. Rafa and Nadal Court, just like it's just. Eh. <laughs> well, I don't think it's that bad, but yeah, no, it's true. You'd have to be like Rafa and Nadal center court, Nadal center court. But yeah, it's true. There's you'd want some like Arthur Ashe Stadium sounds good. Yeah. So yeah, he misses out. Then the name. It you're right. It doesn't totally flow. Uh, but you know he still deserves it. Too bad it's not hockey. It could be, it could be like the Rafa rink. <laughs> wow, super classy. <laughs> but yeah, but we'll. But still, you know, it will be a good tournament, and obviously, we'll speak about that in a bit more detail once it kicks off. So, what else uh, has got your attention in the world of sports, Eddie? Um, yeah, it's been obviously the Champions League was kind of front and center. Aside from that, you know, we haven't since we last spoke. There's been no develop, you know, there's no been Premier League. I mean, there's Newcastle are playing Brighton tonight. There will record a win that I think pretty much you know cements their place in the top four, probably. So, you know, that's significant for them there. But and hey, we had a a deserter from the England camp. I don't know if you saw that, but. a player who has decided to no longer represent England, but now represent the United States, uh, which I find it's not it the interesting. First time. It's not the first. I guess Balogun, for people who don't know who he played, he's on loan from Arsenal. He's playing for Lens, I think it is, in League, League One. He's done pretty well this season, scored quite a number of goals. Is it? But, um, I think he'll. Rams? It is, yeah. It's Rouse. Yeah, so sorry, he's he's at, he's on loan at rest for the season, and we'll probably boom. I know my Americans. <laughs> well, semi-Americans, yeah. So, and he will probably leave Arsenal at the end of the season. You'd have to imagine, but uh, the reaction to it is always interesting. Fundamentally, he's a player who will probably uh, never never be good enough to play for England. So, I don't think it's as if we've missed out on some talent that would have had an impact for England at an international level. He's representing England at under 21 level, but the vast majority of players who played under 21 level do not make the step up to, uh, you know, full, full-time international players. So I just like that the way he sold it was as if this decision was not because he realized he was unlikely to play for England, but because this just felt like the right decision. That's the bit that bothers me. Just have a little bit. I know it would yeah. it would piss off some Americans for him to say, you know, and I'm probably not good enough to play for England, but I am good enough to play for you. It's like a reality check that Americans probably don't want. But for him to make it, he spoke to his family and just deep down they really decided, you know, the United States is the right team for him to represent. <laughs> that bit's that bit's annoying. I, I mean, it's and it's not that hard to do i mean i like listen i I, i'm not a you know a marketing or media consultant but he easily could have said i feel like i have a better opportunity to make an impact on the u.s team than i do the england team and in that statement he is saying 
he can't make an impact on the England team because he probably can't make the squad, but he can make the U.S. squad and probably fit in their starting 11 and, and legitimately make an impact for them. So like it wouldn't have been that hard to say something and kind of acknowledge it and not, like you said, sound in like dishonest about the decision because and I get it. Like, I don't think there'd be many people who'd be super upset and rip on a person who has in the past played for the U.S. and has played for England in both international competitions in under whatever 14 16 18 21 um so it, it wouldn't have been crazy and i don't think people would have ripped into him so like that that was a little strange but i thought you were going to talk about the reaction in terms of us because i've already seen like three or four posts on instagram being like how fire is us is starting 11 now and it's like oh yeah because i got some guy on loan that can't fucking start for arsenal whoa so so scary (laughs) well that's a little harsh to him but look it's a good i know but you you know what i mean (laughs) it's it's a good addition to the us team based on the form he's shown in france this season so you know you have and what they've been lacking in the world cup uh, yeah they they needed a goal scorer so it's a position yeah where they they don't have a lot of strength. So, and look, he was born in the U.S. So this isn't someone playing for the U.S. Yeah. because their grandmother, you know, spent three weeks there 60 years ago. Like this is, he can make a legitimate argument that he feels more American than he feels English. And I have, you and know, I think he some, also could play for Nigeria as well, right? Yeah. And look, surprise, surprise, didn't go down that route. <laughs> I wonder why. But Probably wouldn't know, have made the squad. <laughs> well, I mean, they're not qualifying for the World, World Cup Cups at the moment. So I, you know, and as someone who could have represented or could um, rule nothing out, I suppose, um, multiple teams at an international level, I I would have made, you would have, I would have had a list in mind. And once one was no longer a realistic possibility, I would have moved on to the next. I wouldn't have said, I'm not playing international sport because I can't play for this one country you know it would have if i couldn't have played for england but i could have played for guyana i would have played for guyana like there's no there's no doubt in my mind there that would have been an easy decision to make eddie you did play for guyana and you brought home a gold medal yeah that's true and i also played for france in a more legitimate way which i remember having in a discussion with my dad because my dad had always said that he didn't think that people should do should should like be pragmatic or practical in their decisions to represent countries, and that you should also be locked in. You know, if you represent a country at an under sixteen level, that you should be. That's it. Your decision has been made. Even if you switch sports, even you know if you have declared your hand, and to a certain extent, I get it. But I said to him. Hey, I represented France in cricket. Does that mean if I suddenly develop into a world-class rugby player, you would want me to turn out for France? And he's like, well, no, it's different. And then you know, he just I, laughed at you? <laughs> yeah, it was, that, that was never going to happen. But it is just interesting. Once you kind of get faced with, not that it was a realistic prospect from the sense that I was not going to develop into a world-class rugby player, but a realistic prospect in terms of, you're seeing an example right in front of you as to why someone's maybe made a certain decision. And then you go, oh, no, well, we can probably think of some exceptions. Is this why your dad doesn't like you? Because he chose France? 
<laughs> at, at the sport level. I don't think we need this podcast to be a therapy session where we go into my relationship with my parents. I think that's probably a little bit deep. I don't think that's the usual tone that we go for. Although I, I have a very healthy relationship with both of my parents. I'll just say that. But no, I, yes, we will save that. In spite of you choosing to represent France. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a, still a bone of contention, but we've we've managed to work our way through it. But what about for you? What what's been obviously a busy week of traveling? Oh, I would represent well, the U.S. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I, guess, I suppose you don't you don't really have a lot of choice. Yeah. Oh no, not yeah, a lot of traveling. Um, nothing too exciting traveling wise. I know we often talk about the perils of traveling, and I mean just the usual people standing in your way for a flight that isn't boarding for 45 minutes because they just have to be ready to go and get on that plane and sit there. Um, not, not too much in that regard. I did, however, last night I came home to the hotel and uh, Family Feud was on. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. You can't, can't get enough Family Feud. And it was Celebrity Family Feud. Tough that I didn't even know who one of the celebrities was <laughs> or his family, but I guess that's what to be expected when you have celebrity family feud. They're not pulling in like the, you know, the, the Kardashians, although actually the Kardashians might have been on it once, but this time they, they were not. Yeah. You do get the occasional, they managed, they managed to get the odd, very big celebrity pulls. And often when it's like two athletes going head to head with their families, they do a good, like I'm pretty sure the Gronkowski's yeah. have been on Family Feud. Like you have the people where it works, but no, for the most part, it is a it is like a D-list celebrity who appears on daytime television or something and, and now is on Family Feud, probably because they've done something for the same network at some point or whatever it is. Yeah. So I have the final family feud, the the flash category, whatever, final round. Um, one in particular that, you know, we talk about bad answers. And this was another astonishingly bad answer. Um, I'll go through quickly. I'll, I'll let you answer because I can, I'm pretty sure I can remember all the questions. I just, I literally just have a, a screenshot of the answers, but I have, I can remember all the questions. So I'll ask you and you answer, and then I'll tell you the one that they tricked up on. Okay. How long would you say is too late for when your boss would call you about not being in work? It's a very confusing wording. So as the the question is... It was worded very confusing, just like that. Yeah. So at what moment in time... How much time would be too much time? You mean at what point would they call you? I don't understand what what does how yes. much time would be too much after how much when, like after how long how late would you like how late for would you work? have to be until your boss called you after, there you go uh, I will say yes. an hour okay finish the phrase panic blank stations okay name a vehicle that has a siren. Police car. What would you put on top of oatmeal? Milk. Name a month that has five letters. Uh, 
uh, March. Okay, so the first question, one hour was the number one answer. Hour late, your boss would call. Nice. Panic, button, and panic room were tied for the best answer. A uh, vehicle that has a siren, fire truck was number one, police car was number two, and ambulance was number three. Something you put on top of oatmeal, sugar was the number one answer. You put, you said milk. I, I think you put the milk in the oatmeal, not on top. You wouldn't put it on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, but I the other person said issue. butter. The person said butter and was astonished when he had zero for an answer there. I guess the slight issue here is, oh no, I'd say you put, you don't put milk in oatmeal. Right. Well, Unless I would put like. I guess here it's. It's different. Here you're thinking the more is, like mucilage, I think, is, right? Well, yeah, we oatmeal for us. You're you're thinking of like porridge, basically. Is that yeah. is that what you're thinking of when you think of oatmeal? Yeah, to me, it's like the dried oats, and then yeah. you. It's a, it's a cereal. Yeah. All right. So but yeah, that would be that would be the, error, error error with translation. Yes, be more porridge, but the the one that tricked them up the most. Name a month that is five letters long. The first answer was July, surprisingly zero. The second person had to just get 20 points to win it, and he said August. I w- <laughs> they both had yeah. significant time left. I will left. say, <laughs> because it's, not, it's March the only month with five letters? January, February, March, April, April. Yeah. So you have two options. I have to say it did take me a second to get to March. Like I did, I did instantly go like June, July. No, those are fours. So it did, you know, like it didn't come yeah. to mind straight away, but yeah, if you had 10, 15 seconds, you, you should be fine. It's not like they had about five. five seconds. I can get making them. Honestly, I don't think. I would have got it in five, I think. I might not have got it in five on national television, though. I have to have to admit, with the pressure on. But and and I, you then you probably would have done the thing of, well, at least say a month. Like I'm not just going to let the time run out. I've got to throw a month out there. Yeah. Say something. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of your, you said you know experiencing the pains of travel. I have. I love taking the bus. In terms of, I know I'm a rare person in that regard. When it comes to, you do public, love taking the bus. And if public, if public transport is, a, you know, if I have to use public transport, I mean, it depends on the city. So I'm not going to say I'd take the bus in any city, but certainly in most of the cities that I go to regularly, bus would be my preference. I will take. I would rather take a single bus for an hour than the metro with a change. For 40 minutes, I'll lose the time. If I can get a seat on a bus and just sit there and then enjoy the ride, that's all for me. However, my biggest frustration, especially when you're traveling busy moments in time, is the person who gets onto the bus, like rushes onto the bus, and then has to ask the bus driver questions about where is this bus going to? Will you be stopping here? Can Is there a connection to this other bus that I need to get? In the, in the era of the cell phone, I feel like this is totally unnecessary. 
Like you should be able to find all of that information instantly yourself. But also, if I get on a bus and I'm not sure where it's going, I got to take the time on the bus to figure it out. And if I got on the wrong bus, that was my mistake. I'll just have to get off at the next stop. Like I'm not holding up the bus with 40 people on it. So I can make just check with the, the, the driver that, that this is where I need to be. That's not, you know, we're all adults. This is, if you're a little kid, that's different. But if we're, we're talking about an adult, you're not, you shouldn't be wasting my time because you can't figure out where you need to go. <laughs> I do agree. It is annoying. And it's also very annoying when there's an easy solution, you know, like look at the map that's on yeah. the wall or look at your phone. I mean, when there are solutions like that, that is very annoying. I hate when people ask questions that don't need to be asked because they're too lazy or too dumb to to find out the information on their own. <laughs> or ask, I'm fine. You can add, like, I'm happy to answer the question for you if I know the information. Like if you get onto the bus and then you want to ask some passengers, like, hey, I'm trying to go here. Is this the right bus? Where should I get off? I'm not going to say, hey, you're a big boy, figure it out yourself. I'm not going to, I'll help you. If that, even if that means I need to get out my phone and look it up on your behalf, I'm just, it's when they're asking the driver and then we're just sitting there at a bus stop where they, you know, hesitate like, oh, is this the one I need to be on? I'm not sure. Like, oh, where are you going to stop? And he's going to run through the whole route. And then, oh, if I don't take this bus, which bus should I take? This isn't his job. I want him to just drive me as quickly and efficiently as possible. That's pretty good. So actually, I I had a question I was going to ask you about the bus. So I'm glad you brought this up. So this morning, uh, I went to go to a neighborhood that's a little outside of downtown Dallas to get breakfast and some coffee and one of your favorite treats, a donut. And the bus stops pretty much right in front of my hotel and would have taken me directly to this neighborhood that I want to go to the Bishop Arts District, which is really nice. Uh, it was a $3 bus ride that would have been about 30 minutes. The Uber was seven fifty, and was about 10 to 15 minutes. What are you doing? Oh, I'm Ubering. Like that's... Okay. That, I did the that, same. There, <laughs> yeah, there, there that's... I'm not, I'm not wasting the time. But to me, it's more like so. What's fine. what's the cutoff? What's what's the cutoff? Is the cutoff a certain time difference? Like if it were the same amount of time, then do you take the bus, or is it a money oh, difference? Yeah. Like if well, the Uber was over, what does the Uber have to be over that you say, "Screw it, I'll just take the extra ten minutes on a bus," not knowing yeah. what a bus in Dallas is like? And I'm not saying they're bad. I have no idea. Right. You know, some some cities have shitty <laughs> transit systems, so I don't know. I will say buses in America, I'm less keen. You know, that's the bus people in the U.S. It's a different, can be a different breed. So in the U.S., the bus is probably getting bumped down the list pretty swiftly. But if the if the price difference, let's say we fix the price difference at $3 to $7.50, I'm taking the Uber every time, even if you told me the Uber took in exactly the same amount of time. Then I'm just, yeah, that's... I'm not going to, the comfort and the peace of mind of the Uber for an extra $4 for $4.50, it's the Uber. What price would it have to be? Let's just say I I'm trust the bus system. Like I think it's a fine, it will be a fine experience. 
if it, the bus was three dollars, the Uber would have to be. It would have to be certainly over twenty before I even think about it. I would say it's almost. Wow. I think it's going to be like over thirty dollars before then. I really say no. I'll I'll take the bus. Ten times the price I, difference. Wow. Because I felt I felt on the way back it bumped up to like eleven dollars, and I kind of thought like, ah, oh, is it worth it? But then at the end of the day, I thought I just paid four dollars for a fucking glazed donut. I might as well just pay eleven for an Uber. <laughs> no, that's the issue, you know. But also. So and again, if I'm in, and also if I'm in your scenario, you're in a new city. You kind of don't want to waste, you know, like sit on a bus. Like it's different if it's in the city you live in, and you know, you, there's no real time constraints or anything. Then yeah, the bus bus is going to win out far more easily. But yeah, if I'm on a trip, and you know, exploring Dallas's public transport system is probably not one of the things that you've put on your itinerary for your trip there. I think I would yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the Uber. More often than not, for sure. But in general, like living in Paris, I will take the bus over the metro pretty much. I won't take the night bus. I'm not a night bus person. That's that's a different type of person, too. But hey, 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 we've all been there. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm not a night bus person. I will walk over a night bus. That's easy. Well, but uh, yeah, you say that. But but when the walk is like, 15 miles, Eddie. Sometimes you gotta take the night bus. No, yeah. You, well, you always were somewhat unique circumstances. But I, for example, routinely walk home from nights out that will be like a 45, 50 minute walk that I'll choose to do that. The night bus could be running parallel to me and I would not step on it. You could be racing it. Yeah. And I might win given the, how the night buses function here. And speaking of racing, maybe <laughs> a that's transition. a good segue. To take it yeah. to our interview. Yeah, let's do it. So we're now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Emmett Kennedy, who is the host of the Final Furlong podcast. He's a broadcaster on, on Talk Sports. Emmett, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Edward Frank, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I mean, so you and I originally got into a you know a sort of mini discussion on on Twitter during the time when animal welfare uh, and you know the well-being of horses was a, a huge topic of discussion around the time period of the Grand National, although it's obviously continued to be a talking point. So maybe in a sense, that's a good place for us to start before we talk more sort of racing in general and, and maybe some you know of the upcoming races that we can look forward to. I think you and I probably agree on a bit of it, but maybe if you can maybe sort of explain perhaps your perspective, in terms of how you think both sides have handled what is obviously a you know a hot button issue and, and a controversial topic. Yeah, uh, look, the the initial comments from the animal rights groups, um, and I think we should label them animal rights groups because they're not really animal welfare groups, particularly organizations like PETA, uh, given the fact that 78% of the animals in their care in America last year were slaughtered. That's not really an organization that I want looking after any animals. So it's, it's animal rights groups. Um, they, uh, it, Animal Rising, which were initially Animal Rebellion, and they rebranded a couple of years ago because I think they'd really pissed off a lot of the British public, and so they needed a rebrand. Also, possible that they were labeled a terrorist organization by Counterterrorism Policing UK, which you can argue the merits of whether or not they actually, PETA, Animal Rising, Animal 
aid, do they really classify as that kind of an organization? I'm not here to debate the merits of that. Fact is, that's the classification that they were given. Uh, in their initial protests about the Grand National and their initial comments about it on various different UK and international platforms, they were saying they weren't anti-racing. They were just, they had a, a moral objection to the Grand National. They had an objection to um, the, the safety record of the race and, and that they didn't have any problem with the, the sport overall. They specifically, Orla Coughlin went on Good Morning Britain and specifically said, we're not here to ban racing. We just have an objection to that race. Well, that turned out to be complete nonsense because as soon as the Grand National was run, there they are protesting the Scottish Grand National. They turn up at the 2000 Guineas. They've, they plan to protest the Derby. They plan to protest Royal Ascot. And so they want the entire sport gone. And that is uh, a, a major goal of theirs. And I think that the, the key defense of our sport has, has come from some very eloquent people in, in the industry. And at this point, they all know who they are. But the question that we've put to them is, well, what's going to happen to these racehorses then? All right, if you want to ban the sport, you want to destroy the industry, what happens to the horses who are there? And there's over 50,000 racehorses in the population currently in the United Kingdom between horses in training, mares and stallions at stud, and then their progeny who are being raised and retired racehorses. And the answer that you get, I debated the head of PETA on talk TV and, uh, and talk radio last year uh, over a different matter. And I said, are, are PETA going to do anything to look after these horses? Are you going to step in and, and look after them if the industry collapses? No, they can just graze in fields. They can eat grass and be free. Well, horses have been bred selectively for hundreds of years to the point that they very heavily rely on the human touch. They very heavily rely on humans to look after them. Horses are majestic creatures. They're big, they're powerful, they're strong, but they're also incredibly fragile. And uh, if one of the three of us breaks our leg, we can, we're going to be in a hospital, we're going to be in a cast for over six weeks, we'll be on a crutch, and then you're back to business. If a racehorse breaks their leg, it's game over. Uh, because they have to be able to stand on all fours. They're not built and they're not conditioned to be able to just lie down and relax. And unfortunately, there have been incidents, uh, a racehorse that I absolutely loved called St. Nicholas Abbey, who I'm sure you boys know, won at the Breeders' Cup, created history, the first father and son to win at the Breeders' Cup, trained by Aidan O'Brien, ridden by Joseph, who's now a trainer in his own right. That horse suffered, I think it was an abscess of the foot, and Coolmore had him in a harness and did everything they could to try to save that horse. It was a couple of months, and it just didn't work because you're having to constantly medicate the horse to keep them sedated. You're having to constantly uh, do everything you can to look after the horse when they're fighting to get free because it's not their instinct to just be resting. So if a horse has a, a catastrophic injury like a leg break, that's it. it it's over for them. Um, and, and the safest thing to do is to just put them out of their misery. Well, when an, a, an incident happens on a race course where a horse dies, it's horrific. It's horrendous. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. Um, but the fatality rate in British racing is less than 1%. It's 0.2%, which means 99.8% of the racehorses who go on to a British race course come back home safe and sound. It's less than a percent that don't get home. And if there's no racing industry to look after these horses, well, then who is going to look after them and who's going to raise them? Who's going to be uh, feeding them? And they all require a specialist diet. Uh, they have a very high metabolism. They burn through energy very quickly. So they need good food. They need to be watered. They need um, constant veterinary care and attention. 
if there's nobody there to look after them, and these animal rights groups, the likes of Animal Rising, have made it perfectly clear they will not help them. They won't look after them, and they should all just be grazing in fields. You would end up with a catastrophic situation for horses, like World War I, when horses were literally being conscripted into the military to go fight on the front lines. Um, and farmlands that had been bombed left, right, and center, and horses were just roaming the countryside freely. It was a devastating uh, state of affairs. That's what you would end up with. But would they stop with racing? Is racing going to be the end of it? No, it's not. Because the other thing that we started to learn from these organizations is their overall agenda and their overall goal. And this has been something that they've been quite happy to say publicly. And their overall goal is that we should all be on a plant-based diet. That all of us should, that meat is murder. It's not just you bet they die. It's that meat is murder and that all of us should be on a plant-based diet. They think that agriculture and farming contributes significantly to the global climate crisis, right? That farming is the main cause of this. And this is something that the Dutch are currently uh, facing a huge battle over. And Dutch farmers are now having to campaign. They're literally saying we're going to war over this. Uh, with restrictions that are are, are forcing them. Um, so they believe, essentially, a little bit like Agent Smith in The Matrix when he's talking to Morpheus about classifying humans as a species, you know, who are, what really, what kind of a species are humans? You're a virus. You're a plague. You go from one place to another, consuming every natural resource. You breed, and then you head on to somewhere else. That's what these people consider humans to be. Um, they're self-hating humans, if you like. And that's fine. Like, they have a point there. Like, if you think about, we all know that the Amazon is an incredibly important part of the world. We know that the Amazon is basically the filtration system for Earth. But we're still tearing it down. We're still destroying it. We do consume natural resources in every area. The Western society has... Um, plundered the natural resources of every third world country going and uh, developing nations. That's something that we do on a regular basis. Humans are questionable. And if you went back 65 million years ago, did the dinosaurs who were the dominant species on the planet, did they live in harmony with Earth? Probably. Do we live in harmony with this planet? No, I don't think we do. But if you truly thought about all of that stuff and the consequences of our actions, you'd go insane. You'd drive yourself bananas. And so... We have to look at how we're going to live our lives and, and what it is we do and what impact we can have on our life. And the founder of PETA firmly believes, and this is like a stated doctrine of hers, that humans should have no interaction with animals whatsoever. We shouldn't have anything to do with them. And that if, you have, if you're a pet owner and you don't like horse racing, that's your right. You're completely entitled to that. But bear in mind that the founder of PETA thinks you're horrible for having a dog or a cat or a hamster that you are capturing that animal and keeping it against its own free will and that you're, you're a vile person. Um, well, I don't think that that's the way to live life. I like my pets. I like animals in general. Uh, I like being around them. So what is the overall goal for these organizations? Well, it's, if it's going to put us on a plant-based diet and get rid of agriculture, what happens to cows, sheep, pigs? I interviewed Greg Wood from The Guardian. Uh, today, the podcast comes out on the final furlong tomorrow. And in writing an article where he says that we have to protect racing, but also the right to anybody to peacefully protest is something that is a basic right that we all should also should protect. And he's absolutely right about that. If you want to protest racing, I have no objection to that. You are fully entitled to do so as long as you're doing so peacefully. 
I will disagree with you on it and I will fight uh, our corner, but you're entitled to that viewpoint. But are these people who are saying that racing is murder and racing is terrible and that we're all vile people, are they outside abattoirs complaining about the million pigs every single month that are slaughtered just in the UK alone? Nope. Because that's not going to get you in Good Morning Britain. It's not going to get you on Piers Morgan. It's not going to get you on CNN. There's no, there's no grift in being outside an abattoir uh, complaining about how cows are slaughtered, how sheep are slaughtered. The one farm animal on the planet that is not bred for slaughter is the racehorse. Racehorse is bred to race and kind of bred to then breed as well. But in order for that racehorse to succeed, you have to give them a good life. You have to look after them and treat them like the prime athletes that they are. And that's what we do. I'm not going to say that everybody does. Uh, not every parent is good to their children. That's just a part of the human condition. But the vast majority of people who train racehorses do so with love, care, and attention. And they give those horses an incredible life because they have to. Because they need that horse to perform to its absolute optimum, to its prime, and to its best. So if the industry goes then the very people who look after these horses, who raise them with care, love, and affection, well, then they're gone from them as well. And so you don't have the human interaction to look after them. If we were to just do away with agriculture, which is what these animal rights group, groups want, that goes against the very nature of humanity, because since the dawn of mankind, we farmed the land, and we have been the dominant species on this planet. I didn't really, to be honest with it, I'm, I'm 41 next week, and I don't think I ever really thought about consumption of meat and what that does. I don't think I ever really had a proper philosophical discussion with friends about, I'm sure I did when we were plastered drunk some night, but it wasn't really something that I debated about, is it ethical uh, that we raise cows for slaughter and so we can eat burgers and steak? Is it ethical that we treat chickens the way we do? You just kind of do it because you were raised that way. And I did start to think about racing. Is racing ethical? Is it okay that we're doing what we're doing? I genuinely did start to think about it. And when you really go into the nitty gritty of it, you realize that without the industry, there are no racehorses and there's no one to protect them and look after them and love them and care for them. And these people certainly won't do it because they've made a, a stated goal of that. Well, the same thing applies to the farm animals. Cows, for the most part, I'm sure, have a pretty decent life up until it's tragically taken from them. But hey, that's just the way the world works. Is it right? Maybe not. But it is how the world goes. But if you got rid of agriculture, what happens to the cows? What happens to the sheep? And the likes of Alex Lockwood of Animal Rising have publicly stated that we should get rid of agriculture and then reclaim the farmland. And I'm sure there was some think tank somewhere that said, hey, there's a correlation between rising house crisis, the rising housing prices and the fact that the vast majority of young people will never be able to get a mortgage because there's just not enough houses. What if we start saying if we reclaim farmland, we can build on that and then there's more places for people to live? In theory, that's a good idea, but it's also the type of Orwellian dystopic nightmare that you've seen uh, in in films over the years where it's just concrete jungles left, right, and center as opposed to actually beautiful green land. That's not the kind of future that I want to live in. Um, and, and I think that while they might mean well and they might be well-intended, the consequences of what they suggest are quite devastating. So there's a lot to unpack from all of that, I suppose. And I think, you know, certainly, obviously, in the case of this podcast and Frank and I, we're, you know, big fans of racing. So certainly don't want to see the sport go away. And I do think 
from these animal rights groups, there is at times a, a significant lack of understanding of the care and attention and the passion that most of the people involved in the racing industry have for the horses themselves. And I do think some people have a perception that people see them as a sort of, you know, piece of machinery to be used and, and aren't actually developing genuine feelings for the animals that they're taking care of. But if I'm going to play sort of devil's advocate for a moment, mm -hmm. I suppose the counter to some of what you said is that it's a, sh that say why they're protesting the Grand National is so that, you know, people talk about the topic and if they're outside an abattoir, we would never be discussing it. So it's sort of mission accomplished from that perspective in terms of getting people to think about issues and that it's a shame. I think you've pointed out, you know, some of the extremists within this movement, but it's a shame that some of those, some extremists are hijacking some genuine criticisms of the racing, you know, that it, it, it can be questionable to watch a horse race and see a horse die and think that, you know, this has sort of been for your, not the horse dying was for your pleasure, but the, the race itself existed for the pleasure of, you know, the spectators and those involved can, you know, cause a slight moral dilemma. So what do you think are the sort of genuine criticisms and ways in which the racing industry could improve to address the sort of more sensible critiques of, you know, how horses are taken care of and their well-being? Yeah, it's like, it's a complex question. And, and it's, it's definitely an, an ethical and moral dilemma at times. I, I think if you were to look at the fatality statistics in racing, uh, it's between 64 and 67% of racehorse fatalities happen in a field. So that's horses who are out there minding their own business, not bothering anybody, take a bad step, suffer a, a horrific break, they get uh, caught and are subsequently infected. Various different things. You can't get away from that statistic. Horses who are just minding their own business in the field, it's 64 to 67% of them die. So they're not racing. Uh, meanwhile, the fatality rate in British racing is, as I said, less than a percent. It's 0.2%. So I think the point that needs to be driven home is that the vast majority of racehorses are given incredible lives. The vast majority of them are given better lives than some humans. They don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about veterinary care. They have a, a lovely place to sleep at night. They're sheltered away from predators. They're loved and cared for and, and looked after. And as part of that, we race them. And they're bred to race and they like to race. The people who will make arguments, and there was an article in The Guardian recently from somebody who claims to have worked in the sport for 20 years and has now turned on it. And she, she wrote an article which I had a real issue with because it, it wasn't in as a commentary piece it was in as fact, and the headline was something along the lines of, what is the Kentucky Derby like for a racehorse? Hellish experience. It wasn't that, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. It's like, you don't know that. You don't know how horses are feeling. She talked about the uh, equipment that horses wear and how the bit between their teeth, for example, she was trying to make out that that hurts horses. There's no proof that that's the case. I've spoken to trainers about that. I've spoken to jockeys about it. And of course, you could argue, well, you've all got a vested interest in that. Of course, you're going to say that's not the case. No one is going to do something to horses that intentionally hurts them and causes them pain. Because again, they're the athletes. They're the stars of the sport. Frankie Dittori is the name who transcends the sport. There's plenty of big, big race American jockeys like Velasquez. 
who transcend the sport. But ultimately, horses are the reason we love this sport. You're drawn to this sport because of the likes of Isterbrack, Moscow Flyer, Cotto Star, Hurricane Fly, Flightline this season. How many people are going to fall in love with this sport because they saw the Breeders' Club, Breeders' Cup Classic and his dominant performance on NBC? Countless, countless people will be drawn to it. So you have to look after those horses. Part of that, I'm afraid, is going to be injuries. But injuries are a part of life. Risk is a part of life. If you were to break down the statistics of deaths on British roads every single day, it's an average of five people die. Are we banning driving? Of course not. Now, you can argue that, well, that's a necessity. We need transportation to get from A to B. Do we really need to race horses? But again, if you get rid of horse racing, well, then where are the horses going to be? Where are they going to come through? What are they going to be? Because you don't need horses to pull horse and carts anymore. You don't need them to transport people like you did in old-timey London, in the Gilded Age of New York. That's all gone. There's no need for that anymore. So we don't need workhorses. What we do need, though, is racehorses. And they are given a very, very good life. And if you just destroy that industry for, under the guise of protecting horses, how many horses would actually be left? Yeah, it's a fair point. You know, it's, it's, and, and yeah, it's tough. I don't know, Frank, I know you're probably got a question ready to go. So if you want to. Yeah. Well, I was going to say race to race and breed sounds like a, a great life to me. So, um, but I, I think <laughs> Especially you, brought the breeding up, part. You, you brought up the States, <laughs> you, you brought up the States and, and I think, you know, it's a little more worrisome, I think in America, because you're seeing a lot more fatalities on flat there than you do in flat racing than you do in, in England. And for me, I think part of the issue is that there's just so much more racing going on on a daily basis in the U S there's about two dozen tracks that are going off every day. And you have, you know, very small races with trainers who are not making the money that some of these high profile trainers are. And I completely agree when you see a lot of the horses, how well they're, they're kept for and, and the lives that they have, it's, it's amazing. But I think part of the issue in the States is that there are also trainers that probably aren't doing such a great job because they don't have the money, the finances that some of the bigger trainers do. So do you think that racing maybe has done a bad job in the regard of punishing the trainers that are giving the sport a bad look? And would that at all help kind of kind of help alleviate the situation if they were a little more stringent on you know, the, the trainers that are not doing the job that they should be doing with some of these horses. Yeah. I, I think Frank, it's done a racing in America has done a terrible job of, of really properly policing the doping situations. And, and let's deal with that one. First of all, um, for a long time, for as long as I can remember, uh, American racing Lasix, which is a diuretic drug was just accepted. Not only was it accepted, it was encouraged uh, on race day. And European trainers were using it. Irish trainers used it when they would go to America. And the attitude was, it doesn't harm the horse. And your rivals are going to be using it. So why wouldn't we? Why would we, if we lose by a short head to a horse that was on Lasix and we didn't take advantage of that, why would we, why would we risk ourselves? Um, finally, that's been done away with. Like Lasix is banned for race day use in, in the Republic of Ireland and in, in the UK. It's basically banned in every other jurisdiction. And it's finally been banned over there as well. But there is 
a serious issue with doping and a serious issue with very prestigious high-level trainers. Bob Baffett, um, in particular, like that man is banned from competing at Churchill Downs, which means that he is banned from competing in the Kentucky Derby and any race course that is affiliated with Churchill Downs. So how is he allowed to compete at a major event like the Breeders' Cup? How is he allowed to compete in other triple crown races like the Belmont and, and the Preakness? I, I have major questions about that. Now, he will, to this day, profess his innocence and make, maintain that I didn't do it, it wasn't me. Well, someone did it, and somebody at that yard did it, and you're responsible, you are the trainer. I'm also not naive enough to think that it's just America that has a doping issue and that that's not a problem in British racing or in Irish racing. Um, there was an article by Paul Kimmage, who is an incredibly talented journalist and was fundamental to bringing down and exposing the Armstrong lie with David Walsh. Those two knew the truth. They were hounded for years and, and relentlessly pressurized by Lance Armstrong and those who had a vested interest in his success. And they kept to their virtues, they, they kept to their principles, and they exposed them. Um, and Kimmage wrote an article in an interview with Jim Bolger, who's a legendary trainer and a legendary figure, not just in Ireland, but on the global stage, where Bolger made some serious allegations about drug use in Ireland. Now that was met by the Irish media and by the racing media in general with disdain. They tried to discredit Kimmage, said that he was only coming in to try and make another name for himself. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. If you've got a, an elite trainer like Jim Bolger, somebody who legitimately has legendary status, making some serious allegations, instead of running and hiding from that, we should be looking into it. And we should be trying to expose it. Now, I don't have any interest in pointing a finger at any trainer. And I think, in truth, kind of what you were saying, Frank, about uh, smaller trainers in America, it's probably going to be the middleman and the smaller guy in Ireland or the UK who is reaching for that because they're struggling to compete with the elites. And there is a robust system of checks. There is a robust, like, uh, elite horses have tested positive for drugs in the past, and it's turned out that it was a contaminated feed supply. And the, the company who supplies that feed has been named and shamed in the process. Well, if that's not true, and if it turns out that that's a cover, that food supply company will be suing the absolute arse off of the owners and trainers involved because nobody wants their name tarnished like that. But I'm not so naive as to think that there isn't some element of it going on somewhere in Ireland and some element going on in the UK. And let's not forget, it's not that long ago that one of the biggest racing empires in the world, Godolphin, were embroiled in a massive scandal for doping when Mohammed Al-Zaruni, who had emerged pretty much from nowhere to become their primary trainer, uh, usurping Saeed bin Sarur, it was discovered that a lot of his horses had been doped. There's a problem with that story, though. Um, and this won't make me popular in the sport, but that investigation was wrapped up super fast. And we're supposed to believe that Mohamed Al-Zaruni was the lone gunman, a maverick, acting all on his own, and nobody else knew anything about it. There's a problem there, because some of the horses who were doped in the United Kingdom tested positive while he was in Dubai. So unless he's developed the power of Superman flight, I don't know how he managed to be in two places at the same time, and I don't know how that would have transpired. But that investigation was wrapped up like that. 
Now, since then, there has been no improprieties. There's been no uh, horses testing positive. Uh, and I would like to think that everything is clean. And I, w- I would think that particularly from their perspective, if there were other people involved, they probably just got rid of them. And, and, um, and it's probably known in the racing community who, who those people are. But Godolphin would have a vested interest in making sure that they run a very clean organization and that their horses run clean. Because if, if they tested positive again, their credibility would be completely gone. And they have a massive breeding empire. And if you're going to breed, to, if you're going to send your mare to a, a stallion run by them, you need to know that that horse was running on merit and running true. So, so to be fair to them, I don't think anybody there now had anything to do with that. And I don't think that anybody there now would engage in such a practice because it really would be a disgrace and it really would, would shame them. But the way that whole thing was handled by the racing authorities, that's who I would criticize. It would be heavily critical of the BHA in this. I don't know why they didn't want to properly get to the truth. And maybe there is an element in both American racing, but also in British and Irish racing that we don't want to know. And so if there are smaller trainers, like a guy like Philip Fenton, a Cheltenham Festival winning trainer who was caught with banned substances, he again professed his innocence. They threw him out of the sport. They had to. He's back in it now. And it's your decision whether or not you want to put a horse with him or, or, or not. Um, but to get back to America... When you have somebody like Bob Baffett, who has had not one breach, not two breaches, multiple breaches, multiple horses testing positive for banned substances, you have to start asking serious questions about, is this guy good for the sport and should you be looking after him? And it's almost as though he's uh, Lehman Brothers, too big to fail. Up until the point you just have to go, actually, we've got a choice here. We can bail out that insurance company that could result in a massive global economic downturn if we don't. Or we could bail out the privatized bank, uh, bail out the insurance company. At some point, you have to draw a line and just say enough is enough. And we now have the Todd Pletcher story with Forte, who was going into the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs with a huge expectation, the champion juvenile, Breeders' Cup winner. And suddenly he's not moving very well, has to come out. And then it's revealed that he's tested positive for a banned substance as a juvenile. Well, Pletcher, again, claims his innocence and uh, says that they're going to appeal that situation. But it's not a good look. And it's certainly not a good look on the same week when horses were dropping dead. And you've got two horses from the same yard that dropped dead. Well, it could be a bizarre and tragic coincidence. Or it could be the, and I'm not saying this is what happened, but maybe they were on a bad batch of something. Maybe it was just a horrible, horrible coincidence. But the after effect of that is that man has been banned. So I would applaud the American authorities for taking the action that they did in that they've gone, okay, well, we're, not, we're going to deal with this guy. And maybe they know stuff that is not quite in the, public, in the public eye yet. But you almost have to take a zero tolerance policy to it. There's a, a jockey who very unfairly um, was made to stand down in, in the UK last year for testing positive for a banned substance. Turned out he was completely innocent. It was a false positive. Um, and, and the whole story had to be redacted and people had to apologize to him. And those who covered the story in the way that they did, you know, were, were pretty embarrassed by it. But he ended up missing out on rides in a big event called the Racing League. And he was poised to be the champion of that. Um, and he ended up, it was Sean Levy, and he ended up missing out on that. Now, maybe Safi Osborne would have been champion anyway because she had an incredible night. But there's, there's a fine line between throwing the book at someone and taking a zero tolerance approach and banning someone when it turns out 
oh dear, they were actually innocent, it's a false positive. And those things, of course, can happen in, in horse racing as well. But if you've got someone dead to rights, if you've got a trainer who has multiple horses who are testing positive, it doesn't really matter how many times that person comes out and says, oh, it's not me, I didn't do it. If the evidence is telling you that horses are being doped, if the evidence is telling you that horses are running, mysteriously improving beyond all recognition, and it turns out then they test positive for banned substance, then you kind of have to deal with that person. And I applaud Churchill Downs and the company who owns that race course and the affiliated tracks for banning him. I question why the other jurisdictions just went, oh, yeah, it's okay, he can keep on coming, coming along and continuing to, to race. That kind of stuff doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And it's not a good look for the sport because anybody who wants to criticize the sport, it's an open goal when you have that kind of stuff going on. It has to be, it's like the Olympics. Now, how many of us have been involved in those debates where it's just a case of, at this point, let them all just run on drugs. Like they're all at it. So that let's just have the Olympics of drug use and, and let's get to it. It's, it's a small minority of athletes that dope. It has to be a small minority of athletes that dope because if it isn't, well, then why is it only a small minority that tests positive? But then you also have doctors and uh, other people who come out and say, you don't even know how advanced the science is. You don't know how advanced the, pro the doping programs are. You can't actually, the technology isn't there to, to actually make an athlete test positive yet. Well, maybe it's the same thing in racing. So we, we have to police that better I think we do a pretty good job of it in Ireland and in the UK. I'm, I'm sure that there is some element going, of, going on. There's always going to be an element of people who want to get an unfair advantage. That's just the human condition to a certain extent. But it seems to be a particularly big problem in America. Yeah, there's, I think you've made some really fair points there. And I do think it's tough for niche sports because you know when they are investigating themselves, I think there is even less of an incentive to find fault in any area of your sport because you can't afford any of the controversy. You know, I think it is easier in sort of football or the NFL or wherever it is because they know they can afford to lose the odd person to, you know, because they have lost interest because of some new scandal or whatever it is because they'll be replaced and the sport will continue to thrive. And it does put racing and a, and a lot of other sports in a more, in a more complicated situation. I wanted one of the things, maybe as we kind of get, because we're onto more positive topics eventually. <laughs> and as Frank knows, I'm sort of, I'm Mr. Negative. So I'm here the to, downer. to bring up the, <laughs> that I'm the captain, bring, bring the down the buzz killers the, there. You know, exactly. <laughs> but on the last note, because sort of, you know, for the majority of our listeners are probably not in the category of sort of real racing fans. And for a lot of them, certainly the ones in the UK, you know, the Grand National will be one of the few times that they pay any attention. To horse racing mm. and in a sense i don't think it gives them necessarily a, the best representation of what racing is like on a daily basis because the race itself is you know you got sort of 20 percent faller rates and it does seem slightly more you know dangerous than than the standard race that's taking place on a wednesday or thursday what do you, in um, in my opinion the easiest fix is to reduce the field size i think 40 runners is just too many and you can kind of break down to a certain extent that the, the number of fallers reduces significantly as the race goes on and as there's they sort of less grouped together. What what changes, if any, would you make to the Grand National to perhaps make it more palatable to a wider audience? 
not that it isn't, you know, it is an incredibly popular event, but are there changes that you'd like to see made to Grand National or other major racing rules to kind of make improvements? Yeah, um, the the field size one is is, a, is an intriguing one. Like, is it right that it's 40 horses who are galloping at top speed to that first fence? Um, and I will be completely honest about the fact that that first circuit of this year's Grand National was not pleasant viewing. It was actually deeply uncomfortable to watch. And then as the race warmed up, and we did end up with a brilliant winner in Corrie Grambler and a terrific, a terrific racehorse to win it, but also just a brilliant story in terms of the ownership, the the fact that he's he's a syndicate owned racehorse, which I think syndicates are hugely important for the future of racing, but also that it's Lucinda Russell and her partner um, Scudamore, who they're just terrific ambassadors for the sport. They speak so eloquently. She didn't say anything negative about the protesters. In fact, after winning the biggest prize in jumps racing, she says, hey, you're welcome to come to my yard. I will show you how well looked after these horses are. And it's funny how that's an, an invitation that has been extended to a lot of these protesters. None of them accept it. PETA don't want to go to a yard. Uh, Animal Rising don't want to turn up to a stud farm. They don't want to see how well looked after these horses are. They just reject that. It's just a, a purely, no, racing's bad. And um, I'm not, I've blocked a number of people on Twitter, but I'm, I'm not uh, in favor of, of, um, of limiting people's speech. I'm very much pro-free speech. I'm also people... I'm also uh, pro your, your right to have your own opinions as long as you're not hurting anybody and as long as your views aren't going to hurt anybody. Uh, so I, I, I give them credit if they want to go and, and protest the sport. That's entirely fine. And again, if you do so in a peaceful manner, that, that's all right. Um, there were no fatalities in the Grand National for six straight years. It's not really something that we should be jumping up and down about. You would like to think that there just wouldn't be any fatalities full stop. I don't think we should be getting ourselves a, a big pat on the back for the fact that we had six years where there was no fatality in the race. Um, but what can you do further to make it safer? Possibly, uh, one suggestion that has been made is reduce the, the run to the start so that you don't have such a long run to the first fence. And there was a lot of chaos at that first fence this year. Thing is, they've already done that. They've reduced the, they moved the, forward, the start line forward before so I don't know if if moving that forward again is going to make a significant difference, but there are plenty of ex-jockeys who have advocated that, that and have made the argument that is something that should be done. So I respect that view. Um, maybe reducing the field size, but what do you reduce the field size to? Like what becomes acceptable? Is it do you have it? Um, the arc just increased their numbers from twenty to twenty-four. Flat race, different thing, but they had reduced that number for safety protocol reasons. So do you make it a 35 runner race? Does that make it safer? Do you make it a 30 runner race? Does that make it safer? Maybe it does. Um, it's definitely something to look at and it's certainly something to consider. Maybe a 30 runner Grand National, it's going to be frustrating for owners and trainers whose horses don't get in, but that's kind of a problem as it is now anyway. And, and even just the nature of jumps racing in the UK, like, Frank made the point about too much racing in America. There's too much racing in Britain. There is way too much racing in Britain. Uh, we're recording this on uh, Thursday, the 18th of May. And this weekend, one of the biggest flat races in Europe, the Group 1 lock-in, is going to be run. There's three jumps meetings on, on that Saturday as well. That's madness. It's May. It's the summer. The flat's supposed to be in full swing, and you've got three national hunt fixtures. The jumps boys have had their time. 
you know, they've had their season. We don't need more of this. And, and I, I did a podcast with Brendan Powell recently advocating for, because there is going to be a big shakeup to the British fixture list, giving the jumps trainers and jockeys and stable staff a month break, advocating that you know, when a season ends, it ends. Like when the Premier League season is over, it's done. There's a couple of months break. When the NFL wraps up, they're off for half the year until it resumes. And I'm not saying give jumps racing a break for six months, but they kind of do that in the flat. You know, the flat season ends in November. It doesn't restart until beginning of March, early May, uh, early April. So we could, we could definitely look at something like that to, to not have so much racing in America. And in, in America, I think the reason that you've got so much racing is a lot of those are privatized tracks. They're kind of casino-owned tracks. It's just turnover. It's churning stuff out to get people to bet on. Well, you could accuse British racing of the exact same thing. We don't race every day in Ireland. Uh, there's plenty, plenty of days during the week where there's no racing in the Republic of Ireland. And it's a much healthier system here. Uh, in the UK, uh, in, in the context of the Grand National, the entries for the National this year were down dramatically. Dramatically down. They got less than 100 entries for the premier jumps handicap, a race that's worth a million pounds. And the prize money is irrelevant because prize money in Britain is pathetically bad. But they couldn't even get 100 entries for the race. And by the time the final declarations were coming, the final entry stages were coming, they were drastically down as well. So maybe there will be horses who will miss out if you significantly reduce that number. Uh, and some people, I'm sure, would be annoyed. But in the interest of welfare, in the interest of making the sport as safe as possible, and despite the fact that they have put extra padding on the fences, lowered the fences, um, reconstructed the water fences, the water jump, they got rid of the drop and all of those different things. And all measures, by the way, that I absolutely agree with. I did a feature with Richard Pittman about the 1973 Grand National because it's the 50-year anniversary of Red Rum's first victory. But that race is famous because Crisp, if you've ever seen it, looks, even on the replay, it looks like he's going to win. And it's an extraordinary finish with Red Rum getting up to beat him. Um, it's unrecognizable from the race now. And I'd say in a good way, because jockeys were getting injured, horses were, were dying back then on a far more regular basis. And with modern eyes and a modern mindset, some of those things don't really look particularly right. And, and we can strive to make our industry better and make our sport better. So if it's the right decision and it re results in better welfare and better protection for horses by lowering the amount of horses that can run, yeah, I'm in favor of that. Um, maybe reducing that star position again, further reducing it, maybe that would help. But I'm open to ideas, quite frankly. I'm, I'm not the person who has all of the answers as to how it's solved, but I'm also not the person who's going to bash the BHA if they come out to try and, and make it better. I will bash them over the whip, I don't think they handle that situation particularly well. For all that, I know what they're trying to do. And I think we have a better understanding now of what they're trying to do with that. But they handled it very badly in, in, the, in the start. And you are going to have traditionalists who will say, no, stop changing the Grand National. This is, this is a different world. 2023 is a very different world to 2013, to 2003. There's much more sensitivity now. And, and we have to be aware of that. And we have to be alert to that. And if we can do things that makes our sport better, dread to say, I actually hate saying this, from an optics perspective and from a perception perspective, then we should do it. Well, some, yeah, some, some good points there. Frank, do you want to take us, as I've, I've, pl I've successfully played my role of the downer, do you want to bring back <laughs> some, something a little bit more yeah. upbeat? I think I can put a smile on your face. 
So um, for those who listen to your podcast, they know that you actually have a great relationship with Aiden O'Brien. And as Eddie is well aware, I'm a probably top five in the world sucker for a more O'Brien horse combo. Um, so how did that relationship come about? Uh, and secondly, and I think more importantly, have you been able to decode the O'Brien speak and understand when a horse is in great shape or when it's in amazing shape or when it's doing well, when it's doing great, because it seems every time you have them on, every horse is in great form. So do you have a secret <laughs> decoder for your podcast to, to know what the, what the slight variation is uh, when he talks about horses? <laughs> uh, I haven't spoken to him have I spoken to him this year? I did before Dubai. I haven't interviewed him for a stable tour this year yet. Uh, I kind of don't want to be bothering any trainer until I feel like it's absolutely time to do a stable tour or to to do an interview with them, whether that's for talk sport or for the final furlong. I don't really want to be reaching out and going, hey, I, certain, I will never ask a trainer, hey, do you fancy this one? Uh, unless it's like on the air and, and it's a genuine question that you're asking. I would never text a jockey like Dennis O'Regan is a regular contributor on the show. I, I would never text O'Regan and go, hey, is that thing a solid moral tomorrow? Because there's no benefit to you for that. Like, what are they going to tell you? Are they going to say, no, the horse has got no chance. Then it wins and they look silly. Um, and ultimately, you're responsible for your own money and you're responsible for your own bets. In, in terms of Aiden, uh, I don't like to bother him, <laughs> quite frankly, unless I'm getting him on TalkSport or I'm getting him on the show because he's an incredibly busy man. Um, and in terms of the dynamic and the relationship with him, uh, I I think he likes being interviewed by me. I don't know. He might like sigh and go, oh, Jesus, this guy again. But maybe the reason that we get on is because I, I have, like yourself, Frank, I have great admiration for, for Aiden. I have great respect for what he has done. Um, I I think his ability to train a racehorse is second to none. And, and I have immense respect for Sir Michael Stout, John Gosden, Charlie Appleby, Andre Fab. Look, there are some phenomenal horsemen. The, the, the things that Willie Mullins is doing in this game we're probably never going to see any trainer do again. Uh, the fact that he's able to train horses to succeed on the flat, but dominate the jumps game in the way that he is, is, is remarkable. And Aiden is just built different. Like what he has achieved in the sport, the humility that he has, there is no ego there. I have an ego. I'm sure you boys have an ego. Like we all get a bit carried away with ourselves from, from time to time. It's never anything but patience, decency, niceness, Whenever you're complimenting him on the success of a racehorse, he doesn't want to take that that acknowledgement for himself. He passes it off to the people he works with. He'll he'll mention the work rider. He'll mention the the stable lass who looks after the horse, the groom who looks after the horse. It's always the lads who make the decision about buying the the horses, and will he'll talk about targets for various different horses and say the lads will decide. I'm sure it's Aiden who's deciding and telling them, look, this is what I would do. Uh, Chris Cook got a great piece with him in The Guardian when he wrote for The Guardian back in the mid-2000s. Um, it was the year where Aidan O'Brien... It was, it was perfect. I don't know how Chris managed to pull it off because it was the year where Aidan O'Brien set the record for winners in a single season at Royal Ascot. And um, in that, in an interview with him, it came out that he writes up um, a report on each racehorse that's going to run at Royal Ascot and the chances that they have, and he ranks them. He ranks like the top 10, we'll say, as to which one he's most confident about. And th I think the reason that that piece of information came out was maybe Michael Tabor said, 
oh yeah, Aiden's got this one and he's number four on the list and he's still to come. And then it was trying to figure out like who is that horse? Is it the one in the in the Gold Cup? Is it gonna be is it gonna be Yates? Is it gonna be um the horse is gonna be running in the in the Hardwick stakes? Um but his his ability, his eye for a racehorse, his ability to train a racehorse uh, is, is phenomenal. And it's it's not there there are certain trainers who will excel with a certain type of horse. I, I don't want to pigeonhole particular trainers, but Eddie Lynham is his nickname is Fast Eddie because his best horses have been sprinters. Charlie Cox is an incredibly talented trainer, but it tends to be with sprinters. And that might just be a self-fulfilling prophecy that if if you've got a success with a sprinter, then an owner might go, oh, I'll send my sprinter to him. Or I've just bought a horse that we think could be a sprinter. I'll give him that that horse. So maybe it just it just works as recency bias that you just keep getting that particular type of horse. Aiden has trained champion sprinters all the way through to champion stairs. European champion juveniles to uh, the only horse to win the Breeders' Cup juvenile and be a champion on two continents, as Ted Durkin, or Tom Durkin said in that epic commentary, uh, at an incredibly emotional Breeders' Cup in uh, after 9-11 in 2001, Johannesburg, uh, who was a remarkable racehorse, he just has a, an innate ability to get the absolute optimum out of his horses, but also to pick the right races for them. And I think there's there's a fair thing to be said that he doesn't always get the credit that he deserves, because I think there's a lot of people who just resent that success and will look at it and say, well, of course he's good. He's got a yard full of multi-million dollar racehorses, that's easy. Well, there's plenty of other trainers who have had horses who were bred in the purple and blue breads who cost an absolute fortune, and they were fairly mediocre trainers, quite frankly, and didn't, didn't produce the goods. There are plenty of trainers over the years who have been given lots of ammunition, but they can't land a glove on him. He's the trainer who has the record for group and grade one winners in a single season, He's the winning most classic trainer in British racing history. And he's an Irishman who trains in the Republic of Ireland. He's not even 60 yet. It's, it's extraordinary what that man has done. It's extraordinary what he is still doing. And it's quite remarkable when Aidan O'Brien could have a season where he's won five group ones and we're all going, that was a pretty average season. Like for most people, you'd be like, that's, that's been a fantastic season. But his standard is so high. And yet he remains humble. He remains a very decent, genuine man. He's a family man. He doesn't drink. I like, I like a pint, but it's, he lives and breathes racing. He doesn't golf. He doesn't build Lego on the side. It's racing. It's, that's his only interest. He's not, we're all talking about how good is succession. I know you boys were, were talking about it in a previous podcast, and one of you was slandering that show, and how dare you, by the way. Yeah, that was um, me. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing show. Amazing. It's a fun, <laughs> that third episode of this season is one of the best episodes of television. And don't you dare, Edward, come back over to, well, it's always the case with TV shows. Um, it's phenomenal. <laughs> You, you have a better chance of convincing me to become a vegetarian than you have of convincing me to watch Succession. <laughs> no. Yeah, but we could talk about like Kendall Roy and Logan Roy and uh, that the, the dynamic between <laughs> Logan. If I was to say to Aiden, Aiden, what was what was the relationship like between Logan Roy and Kendall and Roman and Shiv? That dynamic between he probably just look at you and go what? Like, I don't think he has any interest in in that kind of stuff. It's racing nonstop and. Something that I'm fascinated by him is even though he has had all the success that he has had, he's constantly trying to evolve. 
And most of us, when we achieve a level of success, we just go, right, well, that's not broken. Let's not try and fix what isn't broken. Let's just keep going. He will tweak it to make it even better, um, which is a quite breathtaking thing to be able to do. And look, he does have incredible resources. He does have the, the facilities to be able to, and the logistics, to be able to transport his racehorses from Tipperary in Ireland to Royal Ascot and back on the same day. So the horses who run in the Coventry Forum will wake up at Ballydoyle that morning and they'll go to sleep at Ballydoyle that night. But so will Aidan. Aidan's not staying in a five-star hotel at Ascot and then wandering off to the race course to check his horses in the morning. He's going back to Ballydoyle and then back to Ascot the next day. And that's a level of, of an attention to detail that it, that option is not going to be available to everybody because that's a very expensive thing to do. But it's an attention to detail that I think is quite extraordinary. And I, I don't even know if Aiden actually takes holidays. I don't know if he ever switches off. I think he has fully embraced the world of racing. And it's probably the reason why he is so exceptionally good at it. Um, and, and he was handpicked by an absolute genius in John Magner. He had, there's no nepotism involved with Aiden O'Brien. This isn't somebody who was uh, handed a silver spoon and gifted it. And that's not to diminish anybody who has benefited from that. I think in some ways, if you are the daughter or son of an elite trainer, the pressure is even greater on you to go and succeed because everyone's going to think you've only got that position because of who you're related to, not because of who you are. But in the case of Aiden, he worked for everything that he got. And he is at the very upper echelon of the sport as a breeder and as a trainer. And look at his own progeny. Like his own son, Joseph, was an incredibly talented jockey. Uh, who has now gone on to set records as a trainer in his own right. Dunnick had trained a classic winner in his first season, and I'm sure they'll have plenty more success as well. He just he is a remarkable man, and it's hard not to be, to be taken with him. He's not someone you're going to go down the pub with and have a few pints with, but he's somebody that I, I greatly admire. And I think one of the great things about this sport is we all have the opportunity to meet him we have the opportunity to get to sit down and interview and converse or take a selfie if you're a racing fan with Aidan O'Brien, with John Gosden, with Ryan Moore, with Frankie DeTore. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. You know, I'm not meeting any of those players. There's no option for me to do that. I'm a Liverpool fan. I'm not meeting Mo Salah. You're not meeting Jurgen Klopp. We're very isolated. We're more isolated from those players and, and those celebrities in, the, in that world of sport than we ever have been. You know, it's, it's they're off over there and we're here in the cheap seats. But in racing, we have an incredible ability to access these people like Oshin Murphy um, and, and William Buick. And that's something that the sport should embrace an awful lot more and market better, I think, because we're getting access and they are happy to talk. They are happy to be interviewed by you. They're happy to to promote, not just for their own sake, not just John Gosden doesn't just come on TalkSport because it's good for his brand. He does it because he knows that he's helping to promote the sport and he knows how important that is. And he was really at the forefront of that. I think John Gosden uh, should get an awful lot of credit for the way he communicates with the media so well, because I can remember 15 years ago when I was becoming a racing fan, most trainers were quite closed off. They didn't really want to communicate with the media. Gosden embraced that and, and led the way and Aidan O'Brien has very much followed suit. And it's something that, that we should celebrate an awful lot. But I, I, I love talking to the man. And I, I always feel as though I come away having learned something more than I did beforehand. But I will concede that Frank is right, that there's a lot of times where you'll ask him, how's, um, how's Little Big Bear doing? Oh, he's flying it, flying it. They're in great form, in great form. <laughs>
yeah, I, and I'll take I, one, I have I'll take to slight say, issue with one thing. Hold on. Oh, I was I was just gonna say, Eddie, I would be slightly nervous to take to take a selfie with Ryan Moore that my phone might end up in the <laughs> in, in the garbage or on the floor, smack down. But but other other than that, I agree with just about everything you said. <laughs> we were gonna That's make exactly it. the same point. It was the only thing I was gonna take issue with is you might be able to get a, a selfie with Ryan Moore, but I very much doubt he'd smile. Did you happen to yeah. see the um, the transcript from Racing TV after the two thousand guineas? It was um, whoever was it, it was, was it that was doing two words. It. <laughs> yes, basically, I think it was three words, but it was essentially uh, like they were getting a transcript from. It was very much an American thing, and I, I welcome. I think it's great, but um, it's Christoph Sumion gives an account of of his ride. Uh, Oshin is obviously talking about uh, his runner up. Frankie gives a good spiel about Chaldine. Um, Ryan Moore asked the trainer. <laughs> it's just brilliant. It's like not even didn't handle the ground. Yeah didn't move particularly well ask the trainer yeah you know he's a man of man of few words that's for sure now i guess speaking you've obviously there about uh, o'brien and you also brought up gosden it's maybe an opportunity for us to look slightly ahead at some of the big fixtures coming up not too mm. far away from the oaks and the derby and you have an o'brien horse top of the market for the for the oaks and save the last dance soul sister this week with one of the more striking performances at York to now sort of become a major player perhaps uh, in, in the Oaks and now second favorite. Looking ahead to those fixtures, are there standout horses either that you're just looking forward to seeing on a kind of big stage or that you think can take further steps and turn into genuine superstars? Yeah, I mean, Save the Last Dance is the most obvious one because she was so stunning in Chester. Um, and it, I, I thought at the halfway point, God, is she in trouble? And then suddenly she just destroys She didn't them. settle very well. She didn't. She didn't settle very well. And, and it did look as though she was in a little bit of trouble. And then suddenly she's just absolutely blitzed them. But that was then, this is now, like you can get very caught up with the hype of what a horse has just done. Six to four just holds no appeal to me whatsoever. Um, that's not to say that she can't win it. Aidan O'Brien's got an amazing record in that race. And I think the fact that that race at Chester is named after Robert Sangster, um, who was one of the founding members of Coolmore, was an incredibly important part of the Coolmore journey. That's always going to be an important race for John Magner and for the Valley Doyle team to want to win. And it's probably one of the reasons why Aidan's got such a good record in it. You have to have the talents, you have to have the ability to train the horses too. But if you look at the horses that he's won that race with, um, Diamonds and Rubies, somehow, Magic Wand, um, was she fourth in the 2018 Oaks? I think she might have been. I was I was there working for ITV. Um, she was, you know, she ended up winning an awful lot of money uh, and and did very well on the international stage. Thoughts of June took it last year. They're not superstars. So is the Cheshire Oaks the race that they that Belly Doyle target every year with their elite? middle distance Philly. No, it's not. Um, but then again, neither is the Dante, uh, not the Dante, sorry, the Musidora. And that's the race that somehow announced herself. Not somehow, Jesus, my brain has gone. Boys, 11 o'clock, Ireland. Uh, my brain, no work good. <laughs> Mouth words failing me. Snowfall. Thank you very much. Uh, Snowfall announced herself on the scene and some people were trying to make out, well, that was just a flukish performance and it turned out it wasn't a flukish performance. She was a brilliant racehorse. Uh, but remember, Ryan didn't ride her on the day. 
Um, Ryan will almost certainly be on board Save the Last Dance for Aiden. Is she going to be the leading player for him? Yes. Is she going to be the winner and does she appeal at 6-4? No. Uh, I, I would be looking elsewhere. Um, Soul Sister was really good. Very, very impressive. Bit of an unorthodox preparation for her to, to come to the Oaks in that they started her off in the Fred Darling this season. I don't think that's really the kind of race you go to with a potential Oaks prospect. And she wasn't 18 to one shot, but she was very impressive. And she'll go there with a huge chance. And Gosden's obviously got a great record in the race. I prefer his other one, um, Running Lion. I think she's a really interesting horse. And I know Oshin was very taken with her performance at Newmarket. I spoke to him briefly after afterwards. Uh, and at a double figure price, I think she represents a, a very, a very fair, uh, a very fair challenge. Neverending Story is an interesting one. She ran better than I initially thought in in Paris Longchamp, and maybe Ryan has been riding exceptionally well the last couple of years. It was definitely a year or two there where he was kind of in the doldrums, but the last couple of years he's just been unquestionably the best jockey in the business. That wasn't the, his best performance. Uh, now maybe she just didn't have the tactical speed, but it just it seemed like the way things unfolded at Parry Longchamp that she was given an awful lot to do. I would imagine they will take her to the Irish One Thousand Guineas, and that's been a key trial for Aiden. Um, that has been a, a key go-to race for Aiden O'Brien in the past. Now it would be a quick turnaround to go from the Irish One Thousand Guineas to the Oaks, but he did that with Peeping Fawn. Uh, Peeping Fawn was was beaten in the. Irish 1000 guineas, but was placed in the race and was then narrowly beaten in the Oaks, but came out and then dominated Group 1s afterwards and turned form around with um, the the Henry Cecil horse that she that beat her uh, at Epsom. She beat her in the in the Oaks, uh, the Irish Oaks, and, and then went forward. She'd be a very interesting runner, but it, it is on the basis that it would be a quick turnaround. Um, and then after that, it's you're kind of playing a guessing game. Like Maj is not going to go, meditates wouldn't stay that in a horse box. Uh, so it's probably those those three right now, and it's not exactly original thinking. Of the three, I'd happily side with Running Line at ten to one. Um, she might be that price on the day. Uh, I don't, don't know if she has the capacity to really close that much more in in the market, or even if she should. But she'll be Oshin Murphy's mount, uh, representing John and Thady Gosden, who obviously have a tremendous record in the race. And that was a really smart performance on Guinea's weekend. And I think she will stay. So running line would be my pick, but I'm, I'm fascinated to see what Save the Last Dance can do. Um, I, I would say that the horses she beat that day, like it's a nine runner, a horse who's had nine races was in second. And also Ryan made a point about, he thought the other jockeys in behind gave up because it was the rain softened ground. Uh, and that once Save the Last Dance sprinted clear, that they just went like, ugh. So maybe her winning margin was a, a little bit exaggerated, but it, it was an extraordinary visual performance. But at six to four, I, I would pass her on. I, I would side with running line right now. Good tips. I guess then the Derby, which is maybe even more difficult to kind of break down because you can either be an, an Aiden O'Brien believer and think that Auguste Rodin is going to turn up on the day and produce a performance that we haven't really seen any indication it's capable of this season. And then you have military order. Arrest was impressive last time out as well at, at Chester on the same day as uh, Save the Last Dance. And then it's sort of 12th one or bigger. Any standouts in that market at the moment for you? No. And I'm starting to wonder if this derby is going to be a little bit like Serpentine's COVID derby. That something's just going to emerge from left field 
uh, on the back of an, un- an unusual preparation. He'd won a maiden at the Curra on Irish Guineas weekend uh, and then came out and absolutely dotted up in the derby. I'm wondering if it's that kind of a race this year or even an ADAR year. Like ADAR turned out to be a, a terrific racehorse, but he wasn't exactly a market principal on the day uh, and ended up being a bit of a surprise winner. I, I wouldn't be at all shocked if that's the way this year's derby pans out. Um, the military orders case is there for all to see. That was a good performance on the all-weather the other day. Um, he's obviously a full brother to Adar, but he's short enough now in the betting uh, at 130, and I'd be surprised if he's that price on the day. Uh, if a rest is going to be Dar- uh, Frankie's Mount in the derby, in his last derby, we think. Um, and the, he, the very virtue of the fact, by virtue of the fact that he's going to be Frankie's Mount with a kind of attractive name for the public in a rest, he's probably going to be well supported, I would imagine, and be significantly shorter. Uh, than he is now. I could see him going off favourite. The Foxes for Oshin was really good. Today, um, he'd had a nice comeback. He's good form as a juvenile, uh, particularly beating Dubai Mile, who went on to win a Group 1 afterwards and then ran really well in the Guineas this year. Um, will he stay? He'll give himself a chance. He's out of a Darshan mare by Churchill. Churchill's having a fantastic time with things at Stud. He'd be very interesting. I think Dubai Mile is, is a really intriguing one. Um, I haven't nailed my colours to the mast on this one yet. But I have had a bet last year. I backed August Roden. And I may as well throw it in the bin at 16 to 1. He's got no chance. It's, it's oh, yeah? just oh, You're totally. I, I think he's I think I'm screwed. I think for the second year in a row uh, I'm screwed because I, I had Luxembourg at twenties and then he misses the race. And oh. I had this fella at sixteens. Not for like mega money. Luxembourg was for big money. Uh August Roden is, is for oh nice enough money um i can't see him doing it i can't remember the last derby winner who spectacularly blew out in his prep i'm sure there is one but nothing comes to mind and i'm too lazy to have done the actual research into going down through the last 20 runnings of of the derby nothing stands out uh that was a woeful effort in the guineas now on the plus side it clearly was too bad to be true. He couldn't possibly have been right that day. Uh, there's no way that a horse who was a Group 1 winner last year and a Group 2 winner uh, on Irish Champions Weekend went really, really good and then goes to Doncaster and wins the the Group 1 there and a prestigious Group 1 in the style that he did on ground that they were concerned about him for. They almost took him out. Um, there's absolutely no way that, that he would be beaten 22 lengths and that that's his, as good as he is. So the positive side is the run was too bad to be true, and they backed the balls off him. He was backed into 13 to 8 favours in what was a red-hot guineas. Like his stable companion, Little Big Bear, is a horse I have a lot of time for. I'd like to see him give another another spin at a mile uh, in the Irish guineas, but it looks as though they're going to go straight to sprinting with him, and that's exciting. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Caldeen's, and there was a lot of money for Caldeen late on. Caldeen went out to 8 to 1 and then came in to 4s, I think, just before the off. And despite the weight of money for Chaldean, Chaldean, I'm sure I've done three different pronunciations of that name at this point, August Roden still goes off the 13 to 8 favourite. And oftentimes, particularly with Coolmore and Godolphin horses, when uh, a horse goes off at an artificially short price, it's because they know that horse is going to run well. They know that that horse is capable of of some big things. And if it doesn't happen on that day, um, it will happen later. Or at least it should, because it tells you the regard they, they have the horse in. And I know that Coolmore have this theory that 
horses who go off well-backed favorites in group ones just looks good from a breeding perspective from um uh, from a stud perspective because it it suggests to the industry that they knew and that they really fancied the horse so i would have every belief in aiden to have him right on the day um but some of his comments that this is his number one when he said those things a couple of weeks ago i observed at the time well who else is there and i was very intrigued with continuous who ran in the dante you know, not good enough on the day. Maybe he'll come forward, but certainly he's not entered in the Derby for one thing, but you wouldn't be supplementing him for the race on the back of that. Uh, and none of the other Ballydoyle horses really stand out as being major contenders. Peking Opera would be interesting, but he'd need to do more. San Antonio was a good winner of a Derby trial. I don't think it was a good enough performance to go and, and win. Alexandropoulos and Victoria Road are both on the easy list. Uh, Alfred Munnings hasn't run since Royal Ascot last year. So what else is there there? I don't think there is anything in, in that yard uh, that can really come out and, and and challenge for the Derby. Maybe there is something. Maybe Peking Opera will win. Um, uh, would there even be enough of a turnaround to run an Irish Guineas weekend and then run in the Derby? I can understand doing it with a filly. With a colt, you probably don't um, do that. So, look, if if Aiden does it, it's just another example of his genius. If you're backing August Roden for the race, you're doing so purely on the basis of the fact that as my battery runs low here, because I'm trying to plug out that, uh, if, you're, if you're siding with him, you're doing so purely on the basis that Aidan O'Brien's an absolute genius and you think that he's going to be able to go and win it. You're not doing it on from a logic perspective. And at five to one, no, I, I don't think he can. I think he could be a huge player in the arc. Later this year, I could see him bolting up in the Irish Derby and emerging as a huge player for the Ark. But it's a quick turnaround. It's it's 28 days from the Guineas to Derby Day. And you're trying to turn around a 22-length defeat to a Group 1 win in the prestigious three-year-old championship race within the space of 28 days. He's a genius. He's an even bigger genius if he does this. I, I can't see it happening. Um, and I haven't... I haven't decided who I'm going to back yet. I'm, I'm going to try and be clever and maybe I'll regret that. But the, the horse who appeals to me at the moment is Dubai Mile. Solid form. You know, chased home the Foxes. Uh, Newmarket, he's come out and won a derby trial. Went to France and, and won a derby trial on his own right. Um, the horse who he beat that day has come out and won a derby trial at Chester. And he's run a good race over an inadequate trip in the 2000 guineas. So I, I think he could be a big player. And at 16 to 1, he's the attractive one at the moment. But I'll try and be even more clever between now and then because I have a feeling this is a race that could be ripe for an upset. You talked about you know, betting O'Brien and throwing logic out the window. And when Chaldine or Chaldine won the guineas, my instinct was, of course he did. To Tory's last guineas, he's going to win. How much of that do you think could play in this year to, you know, this is his last Royal Ascot. It's his last Gold Cup. It's his last arc. You know, it, is there any logic to that? Do, do you think that could at all play a factor where he goes into this knowing it's going to be his last fill in the blank for Group 1 race and that you have to kind of keep that in mind? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point, Frank. Um, and, and look, you could look at uh, some of Frankie's big wins like the Ark, uh, for example, Golden Horn had no right to win that Ark. He was drawn in the car park and he gave him a peach of a ride. 
But then Frankie did what he did on Stradivarius two years in a row in the Gold Cup. <laughs> it almost resulted in in a split with uh, with John Gosden. They were literally Ross and Rachel on a break uh, for a while after after the Royal Meeting. But to give him credit, like he's bounced back incredibly well this season, and he is riding like a man possessed. Like that ride in in the Oaks Trail in the Musidora yesterday. I think that was his only ride of the day, and and he gave her an absolute peach. The ride on on Caldine. He got it badly wrong in the prep when he did the flying dismount at the wrong time. Um, but the Guineas ride was was exceptional. Now, Caldine is a very, very talented horse. Arrest looks to be very talented too. And, you know, if I like Dubai Mile, I have to like Arrest. The only thing that I would have against him right now is his price. But there's a fair argument to be made that he's going to be a lot shorter than the price he is now. Like, if, if you just look overall, we've pretty much had all the Derby trials now. There's not really anything else to be run where any other horse can emerge on the scene unless something runs in a listed race or something emerges from left field from a maiden like Serpentine did uh, to emerge uh, as a proper contender for the Derby. Maybe Flying Honours was bitterly disappointing today for Godolphin, and and so there's a question mark there as well. They've got military order anyway. So what else is there that can emerge on the scene in the next few, in the next week or two before the race comes around? Not a whole lot. So he's going to go there with a huge amount of confidence. And maybe he was lacking that confidence last year. You know, maybe, maybe there was just something wasn't quite right with his mindset, and that's why he ignored the advice from John Gosden and, and repeated the same mistake. Uh, and when I say that, maybe it was arrogance. You know, maybe when Gosden and uh, Bjorn Nielsen were telling him, "Do not do what you did last year and get caught in traffic on on um, on the the Great Stair uh, Stradivarius," that maybe there was an arrogance to him. It was like. Pfft, I'll do it and still win and prove you wrong. And you know, his I, I I still think I think Kiprios is so good that Kiprios was going to win that race anyway, but Frankie did himself no favors. That was then, this is now. Now Frankie's a hero again and he's riding incredibly well. Um you have to factor it in. There's been like big money Mike in America and uh, jockeys like Christoph Sumion have pulled off remarkable wins on horses that on form really didn't have the ability to go and win that race. And it's just they ground save or they make a, a crazy Ivan maneuver that presents them with the race. Ryan Moore has has excelled on horses that were 10 pounds off being good enough to win the race and they managed to go and do it anyway. That's why these guys are are regarded as highly as they are. It's why they're they're paid the big bucks because they make decisions and they can see things happen in races and, and unfold in front of them that lesser jockeys, for want of a better expression, just don't. So, and maybe the fact that this is Frankie's final season and so that he knows each time he's going out, I will never ride in the Derby again. I'll never ride in the Guineas again. This is it. That he's putting that pressure on himself that he has to, absolutely has to get it right. And then he's delivering. Um, yeah, he, he's going to be a huge player. It is definitely something to to think about. For all those people who look at, at Frankie's farewell tour as a, oh God, it's the last Royal Ascot. It's the last Glorious Goodwood. Get on with it. It's actually a great gift because racing's going to miss him when he's gone. He is the one jockey who transcends the sport. There's a very strong argument to be made that the two biggest names in as jockeys are Rachel Blackmore and Frankie Dettori. And for various different reasons and ability, they do transcend the sport. Like Ryan Moore, in my opinion, best flat jockey in the business. That guy's not going on Graham Norton's show. That guy's not being asked on Jimmy Kimmel's show. Frankie Dettori has an outside chance of being on Jimmy Kimmel and definitely has a good chance of being on the Graham Norton show. Um, he's a huge personality and we are going to miss him when he's gone, but he's definitely with the way he's writing this season, he's definitely a piece of ammo that you're going to want in your chamber. 
Emmett, for someone who loves Succession, you should almost want <laughs> to see Ryan Moore on on those types of shows, just for the awkwardness and the the humor that will give you. <laughs> it might not be enjoyable. It'd be like a a really tough episode of The Office to watch, but I think you'd enjoy it at the end of the day. <laughs> The cringe of the office, that humor. Could we get Kieran Culkin to play him, actually? They have a kind of similar <laughs> yeah. similar jawline. Yeah, I could see yeah. I could see Kieran Culkin playing him in a film about his life. Yeah, we could get Kieran Culkin to go on the Norton show and uh, and represent Ryan Moore on his behalf. But just Graham being like so vibrant and and so giving with his guests and he wants them all to get plastered beforehand. Uh, just him trying to get a bit of crack out of Ryan Moore, that would be gold. I, I always thought Ryan Moore looks like Eddie Redmayne. Oh, that's a that's better. We got him. We got <laughs> he the looks casting. like Eddie Redmayne. I really Eddie, our, think he looks our, like him. We need Eddie to dye the hair fully black, but yeah, our people will call your people Eddie. <laughs> so you you mentioned Royal Ascot. Again, uh, like you might not know, but our listeners know, Eddie and I go every year and we'll be obviously going again this year. And Woo. Eddie might have missed his opportunity to ask it and, and give back to you what you always say. But how about you bring on the gravy and give us some good tips for Royal Ask Is there anything you're stuck in on already with some antiposts or what? Uh, there's a couple. I, I want to check this now and see where I currently am standing. So um, first of all, boys, Drinks on me because I'll be there on the Tuesday for Talksport. So uh, let's let's meet okay. up in let's meet up in the car park, top hat and tails, and um, and have a bit of fun. We will be there Tuesday, Tuesday and Wednesday this year. So we'll be let's there. Let's go! Let's go! Um, so <laughs> Prince of Wales stakes. I backed Luxembourg before he's come back. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, yeah, that did not go particularly well. Um, I'm pretty certain that he's going to run in the Tattersalls Gold Cup on his next start, and I'm excited by him. Um, I'm very excited by him. I, I, I loved his performance in the Irish Champion Stakes last year. He's a, a horse of, of immense quality and immense class. Um, it's a very exciting older horse division. I, got, I interviewed James Savage, who's the assistant trainer to Sir Michael Stout, a couple of weeks ago, doing a stable tour with him. And he's very, very bullish about Baybridge this season. I thought he had a really nice comeback in Group 1 company in France the last day. Adair is back. Desert Crown, obviously, from the Stout Yard is back. Uh, Vidani was beaten in that race. The Bay Bridge was third in. Emily Upjohn returns. Uh, and then you've got Luxembourg. And he is going to run. That is the race that he's been targeted at. And at 10 to 1, it's, it's a little bit different with Luxembourg compared to August Roden for two reasons. One, August Roden is currently 5 to 1 for the Derby. And it's a 22-length defeat that you have to turn around. Uh, Luxembourg was only beaten three and a half lengths and he's 10 to 1. And I would be disappointed if he's beaten in the, in the Tattersall Skull Cup. I think he'll get back to winning ways there, then turn up to the Royal Meeting, and he really should be very competitive. So the 10 to 1, I think, is is um, is likable. Uh, I didn't avail myself of the 16 to 1 that Emily Dickinson was before the Gold Cup, um, before her prep run in Navin uh, in the, yeah, the vintage crop stakes. Um, I know that there had been a lot of talk that she was going to be the, the new superstar stare. I had covered her win for TalkSport at the Curra last year uh, on soft, heavy ground when she bolted up. I thought it was good. I thought it was a really likable performance. I didn't 
truly believed that she could be a Gold Cup winner. My God, she was very impressive on her comeback. Really impressive. And there's an argument to be said that in Kiprios's absence, the 100 to 30 about her, maybe you can get a little bit of 72 if you shop around, is very fair. Um, we're going to see Broom run later on today when this podcast comes out at York. And it'll be interesting to see how he gets on. Uh, that division uh, that division has taken a real pounding with Kiprios being out and with Trushan just seemingly having fallen out of love with the game. Um, you've got a former winner in Subjectivist who's coming back. You've got Elder Alderov, who was a St. Ledger winner last year. Uh, Coltrane, who who won the race when Trushan bombed out the last day at Ascot. Uh, Tr- Coltrane is a, is a nice, admirable racehorse. Broom is a lovable racehorse. I think Emily Dickinson is going to murder that lot. It's just, it's ripe for something to come through that's unexposed, something that will stay strongly. She's bred to stay. Um, and she's trained by an absolute genius who just thrives in that race. So I, I would be pretty big on Emily Dickinson. And um, I suppose the most obvious one in terms of the the sprinting division, and this is very much now the Aidan O'Brien show at this point, um, but the obvious one for the Commonwealth Cup now is Little Big Bear. Now that they're going to go sprinting with him in the Greenland Stakes at the Curra, and then you would hope that he will be able to win that race and then emerge as a serious contender for Royal Ascot, which is, of course, a meeting he won at last year. And if he does, then the 7-1 to one that's currently available about him for the Commonwealth Cup is pretty attractive. But I would make an argument, and this is a little bit more left field, and this is kind of the reason why I thought they might stick to a mile with him for, for a little bit, go the US Navy flag route of run him in the Irish Guineas, the St. James's Palace Stakes, and then drop him back in the July Cup if those things don't work out. Um, but the Antarctic is getting no love. And the Antarctic was a really good, a really good uh, juvenile last year. He kept chasing home his stable companion, Blackbeard. Well, he's a Coolmore stud now. He's out of the way. Um, it was a pretty underwhelming comeback, but it was on heavy ground at Navin. And as a full brother to Patash, who hasn't been gelded, and that's something that we have to bear in mind because Patash was a bit of a psycho until they gelded him. And even then, he was still a bit of a head case. But 25 to 1 about a horse that fast who could really thrive this season, I think is big. And I'm, I'm very intrigued in, in that price. I'm very intrigued to see what he can do this season. Some good tips there. Some we think. Some interesting anti-pros prices. Yes, yeah, we never know. Well, they, at the moment, they're all good tips. We'll have to see how they how they play out until, until, the, until the race actually goes off. They all look amazing. But I guess, as, I'll get, Frank, obviously you can have another question afterwards, but as my final question, you know, over the course of this discussion, we've, You've mentioned a number of different racing superstars, actual horses, not just the likes of Dottori and Moore and, and Rachel Blackmore. I am a big believer that the sport needs superstar horses consistently. It's hard to find, but you know the the storylines around something like Baid generate interest from a wider audience and you know help attract a little bit more uh, sort of attention to the sport. Do you have any predictions or feelings about what could be the next sort of big superstar in, in British and Irish racing, at least? Ooh, great question. Um, I think in the context of this season, most people would have said at the beginning of it, August Roden, and then what happened in the Guineas happened. But that mantle was then taken by Caldine. And there is a lot of potential there for him to do exceptionally well this season. He's not going to go to Ireland for the Irish 2000 Guineas. He goes straight to Royal Ascot for the St. James's Palace Stakes. And he really should win that. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know who's going to be in opposition on the day uh, and who comes over from France, like the French 2000 Guineas winner. Will he be there? But even if he does come over, I think Caldine has his measure. I'd be disappointed if he was beaten in that race. Uh, and then you're on to Goodwood for the Sussex Stakes. In the older miling division, we're going to see the lockage this weekend. It's not a whole lot there that I'd be afraid of for him. And he'll get the weight for age allowance. So if he's won at Royal Ascot, he really should win the Sussex Stakes. You're then probably looking at the Judmont International. Uh, he won't stay a mile four, but he could definitely stay 10 furlongs. And I, I had Oshin Murphy on the show a lot last year because you know he was suspended and he had time off. Much more busy now. And he had made that point. He had said that 10 furlongs will be the maximum you go with them, uh, but he would absolutely have the ability to stay. And he had been riding him out in work in the mornings. And if Frankie had gone to America for the the Kentucky Derby, which he almost did, Oshin would have been on board in the 2000 Guineas. So it was in his interest that Frankie puckered off. Um, but it's a little bit more special that Frankie's going to be on board because it, it will add to the narrative of Galdine. And so if he wins at Royal Ascot and then wins at Goodwood, and that's asking a lot, that's not going to be easy. But if he can do that and he's doing it with Frankie, then you've got an Andrew Balding trained horse ridden by Frankie in his farewell season going into a race that is the number one race, the highest rated race in the world, and that the owners sponsor, the Jumont International. And that would be a huge story. And then after that, you're looking for the Bayid story. Now, he won't be unbeaten because he was beaten on his debut. And obviously what happened uh, in the Greenham happened and there's no one doing that. But it's still going to be a huge story if he's the Guineas winner who's essentially unbeaten in Group 1 company going into that. And that has a, a lot of potential. And, and the story would be, well, where do you go after the Jumont International? Do you go to Ireland for the Irish Champion Stakes? which is obviously a hugely prestigious race. Are you going to ask it on Champions Day? Is there a risk that if you wait for Champions Day, the ground could deteriorate like it did last year uh, and Bayid blew out? Would you go to America, for example? Could you go over for the Breeders' Cup mile? I think Frankie would probably push for that. And, and it seems as though the Breeders' Cup could be his farewell story. So he's the one horse. There's, there's a, a lot of horses who could do exceptionally well, but I think he's the one horse that has the real potential to properly take off uh, and to really explode. And a lot of that has to do with his trainer, who's so eloquent and a real gentleman. But the big story is going to be Frankie. It's Frankie's final season. It's Frankie's farewell. And it's him and Caldine. And he's a Group 1 winning juvenile who's now a classic winner. There's a lot of potential there with him. So I'd, I'd hang my hat on Caldine to hopefully go unbeaten for the rest of the season. And I think he can. I'll, I'll piggyback off that and maybe... Maybe poke the bear a little bit from from what I know about what you said previously. All said and done, who was the better horse, Baid or Flightline? Um, <laughs> drastically tries to remember what he said last year. Uh, I think I think Flightline was. And uh, that is me going back. I'm pretty sure I bashed a young journalist in the Racing Post who who wrote an article about how the potential to be better than Bayid. And I'm certain that Mark Milligan and I were like, who's this work experience kid expressing an opinion different to ours? Rah, 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 rah. Um, at the end of the day, one horse went unbeaten and the other didn't. Um, Bayid blowing out on his final start doesn't take away from, it doesn't diminish his 
previous successes and it doesn't take away from what he had previously achieved. I was disappointed that they didn't go for the arc with him. Probably a good thing that they didn't, but who knows? The ground had deteriorated so badly on arc weekend, it probably wouldn't have suited him anyway. But he had been so good in the Jumont International. Like that was visually his best performance. He was great in the lock-inch, but the Jumont International was the, that was the race. And if his career ended there and they never raced him again, I'm probably saying Baid because I would be biased towards a grass horse trained in the UK. But Flightline, my jaw was on the floor watching that Breeders' Cup. I was, I was watching Racing TV's coverage, and when he rounded the final turn, he did something that very few horses can do, and he made you feel something that very few horses can make you feel. That brought me back to watching George Washington win the Phoenix Stakes which I made me made my jaw drop um, to Frankel and what he was doing in the 2000 guineas, which was extraordinary. It was that good. It was that level of a performance. They were just going, oh my God, who the hell is this fella? And where can we see him next? And it was gutting that they retired him, but I get why they did. Um, I, I think if, if, if I was involved in the syndicate ownership of him, I'd have been, I'd have been taking the money as well. It, it was pretty extraordinary. It was a brief career but it burned incredibly brightly and he achieved some remarkable things in that brief career. So I'd, I'd have to say flight line for all that. I was a big fan of Baid. Well, Frank, do you have anything else? Obviously you've been super generous with your time, Emmett, but, and no, you're welcome, time is getting later and later. So we don't want your, your brain to completely stop before, uh, before <laughs> much, the... much appreciated. Yeah, I've, exactly. I've had, Thank I've you had so a much couple for... of pints of Coca-Cola and I'm on talk sport in the morning. So if I'm, like awake all night with heart palpitations and can't sleep. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm interviewing Huey Morris in the morning. I'm like, <sighs> sorry, Huey, Quickthorn. Uh, then I can just blame Edward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, by all means, blame the, blame the podcast. It would be great promotion for us. So you can, you can bring it up. <laughs> I, I have to say, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You let me ramble on. Uh, way more than I should have went off on a number of tangents, but thoroughly enjoyed it, boys. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. It would be great to have you on again in the future. Absolutely. And yeah, we can get some get some pints when we're when we're all in in Ascot. So I'm talking about. That's what I'm really talking about. We should record <laughs> yeah. a podcast with the three of us plastered. <laughs> that could that couldn't possibly go wrong. Go wrong. Are, am I allowed to bring my microphone with me into the yeah, race I'm course? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. The racing blogger will probably see the microphone and be like, oh, what? As long as, long as it's in a picnic basket. <laughs> the, racing blogger isn't, the racing blogger is not a fan of us. So we... Uh... He's no fan of mine either. So I wouldn't... I'm sure you're not losing any sleep over it. <laughs> no, it's okay. He's not exactly our style, I don't think. But no. yeah, he's not, he's not no. our biggest fan. Uh, listen, good luck to the guy. Well done to him. Like he has his style and he does his yeah. thing, but no, no, no thanks. And it, and it attracts a, a different type of audience to racing. So it's it's probably good for the sport. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's not. I, I, not I think to be fair to him, I don't follow his stuff, but I think he's cut out the, I'm putting five grand on Tiger Roll with even money in the cross-country chase nonsense. I think he's, because that's not healthy. That's not good for the sport. And especially when the horse loses. But irrespective, even if he'd won, it's just, that's not a good look. Just don't don't be doing that stuff. Um, and I think he has cut that shit out. So you know, fair play to him in that regard. Yeah. And and some of it, you know, the, the, the ARC video, was entertaining in its own way. He he yeah, does things, uh, He to be fair to him, he does things on social media and does interviews that I couldn't possibly do. And and I think very few would have the skill set to be able to do it. It takes a certain personality and a certain skill set to operate on social media like he does and to handle the camera in the way he does. And he's, 
know, he's quite yeah. cheeky in the way he'll just go up to somebody and you kind of have to admire the hustle there. A hundred percent. There is absolutely no way that you could just have me out in public just filming myself talking loudly and, you know, I just don't have the personality for it at all. So I know I couldn't do it. So, you know, it, it is, it is impressive at times, but yeah, it's just not my type of, not my type of content. Yeah. Yeah. We respect the hustle, but, anyway. sir, but <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. We can, we can sign off with one final shot at the racing blogger <laughs> and uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Emmett. <laughs> thank you boys. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.